Welcome to this extended podcast edition of Straight Talk Wealth Radio. Heard across America on broadcast stations and after the show podcast. Heard right here on the internet. With your experts in all aspects of retirement planning, wealth preservation, and income planning, guaranteed to last a lifetime. And now, your host of Straight Talk Wealth, Bruce Whitey. Hey, where'd the uh, big studio audience go that always applauds for me every time I show up and Where's my where's my partner Chuck? Hey, this is the extended after broadcast podcast and Chuck had to go, he couldn't stick around. So, I'll tell you what the reason for this is. The reason we do this is because when we do broadcast radio, we have time limitations. And I got to tell you, I sweat bullets every week trying to put together an outline, tell a story, but also, frankly, to get people to call and to respond to what we're doing. So at the end of the day, what happens on the broadcast show is that we're giving enough of an issue that we can make people aware that there's something to be concerned about, and we try to evoke some action where they begin to connect with us. So uh, if you've called into us, you might be getting our, our emails as we continue the relationship, continue to put information out. You may have called to get our Straight Talk Wealth uh, Retirement Roadmap Service. It's an incredibly valuable service, and I'll talk more. I'm going to talk more about strategy and technique at the end because really what I want to do on a podcast is take all the stuff I had to throw away and throw away I could not put in the broadcast, and I want to finish telling you the rest of the story. And that's really why we've started doing these extended broad, uh, podcasts. So I'm going to go back over our outline a little bit. I'm probably going to rehash a little bit about what we did on the um, broadcast because I know, frankly, a lot of people listen to the uh, online podcast and, and don't even hear the uh, radio show that goes on around the country. But um, I'm just going to go back over this outline a little bit. Uh, the show that we just covered is Who's Goosing the Market? And um, what we're really talking about here is is my concern that when I look at the S&P 500 or the Dow or whatever, any of the major indices, and, and I see that's you know, since 90s, we had good long run of sustainable growth until about 1996. Go look at the chart yourself. And then from 1996 to 2000, we had the tech bubble, which no one knew it was a bubble. We just thought it was the new era and, and we're all just going to be so rich just throwing money in the stock market. Uh, and that burst. And it burst down to the bottom of a channel that came back up. And it was the credit. And it, who would have known? Who would have guessed? That it was the credit and banking bubble. And it burst. And one more time, it falls down to the bottom of that channel. So now we're back up at the top of the channel again. And what I want to know is, what is that? Is that sustainable economic recovery? Is that what the stock market is operating on? Or is this some other kind of bubble? Um, and I could go on for hours because I've really read up and I've studied on this. And... Um, I don't like to necessarily push my opinion on you at the show. What I like to do is let the experts give their opinion and talk about their point of view. And um, you kind of come to your own conclusions. I mean, I'll express my opinion, but, uh, you know, uh, there's probably some people out there that are smarter than me. You're fired. So, um, but the bottom line is, this is what it means. I'm a baby boomer. I'm 55 years old. Hey, this is great. Um, grew, up, <laughs> grew up in Southern California. Uh, grew up on rock and roll. I, I know my generation well. And uh, I've got friends that are 
very wealthy and I've got my friends that still can't fix their beat up station wagons when they go to drum at a gig. So uh, I've re- I'm very nostalgic. I've kept a lot of my old high school friends and made new professional relationships, which has been an honor and a privilege to this uh, show with the people that I've met. I had a chance just last week to meet with David Walker. He was the former uh, chief accountant uh, at the GAO. This guy sat in the president's office and told the president of the United States what we could afford and what we couldn't afford and uh, showed him projections. So I have an opportunity to meet some great people, but uh, uh, you know, I don't even know if it's relevant, but I'm true to my roots. But I think what's relevant is that I'm a baby boomer. And our, our generation may not be the greatest generation, but uh, we are for sure the biggest generation. We are about 80, I've heard between 73 to 83 million people in a country of 300 million people. So our demographic is extremely influential um, in terms of its momentum, in terms of uh, what we're doing as consumers or as uh, spenders or earners or producers is sort of the leading trend of what the country's doing. And um, for those of you that don't remember that aren't baby boomers, um, I remember when I grew up in Anaheim, California, and my mom would send me down. Uh, she literally, she did this. I, I must have been about four years old. And she said, get out of the house and uh, go down the street and meet some friends because you're getting in my hair. And it was literally like I could walk down the street and if I knocked on about three doors, which was safe to do back then, I met some kids my age. So um, that's how extensive it was. I mean, a guy could get a truck. A guy could get a truck and just go down the street and um, pick up dirty diapers. And it was a good living because there were dirty diapers at every house. So, um, you know, then came rock and roll and then came the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and we bought all their records. And to this day, I think the Rolling Stones are still the biggest money-making group. So, you know, it, who would have imagined they'd still be around? But that is the prominence and the weight of the baby boom generation. So that's who we address in the show because when we go back and we look at these bubbles and we look at what the economy has been for the last 10, 12 years – The question is, what's it going to be in the next 10 or 12 years? Because that's the end run, baby. You know, the boomers are like, you know, the biggest generation in America are either going to have a retirement, something that might look something like mom and dad's, or they're just going to work forever. It's going to be a a very interesting potential sea change. And what, uh, through studying the work of Harry S. Dent and a lot of other economists we look at, when you look at all of this going on and you think it's random events somehow we we just had and some of it is random but underneath it there are currents that are very very predictable and they have to do with demographics so that's kind of demographics is another show but the bottom line is is that um there is a pattern to this uh there are some things we can know about it and can predict about it and uh what i'm going to purport on this show is a good chance that while the market is doing very, very well, I don't trust it. And I'm not going to trust the stock market really. And I don't see sustainable growth in this country until maybe the end of the decade for so many reasons. And that's my underlying editorial opinion. But each week when we talk about solutions, the situation and the solutions, I'm going to just present what the experts are saying. Let let you make up your own mind. All right. So there's my seven minute and 40 second set. 47 second uh, diatribe uh, of what we're about, what we're doing. Uh, Let's get into the content here. Who's goosing the market. So 
The first thing that uh, we presented, I'm going to skip an, uh, another thing that we opened up with. We had Gina Sanchez, who is the director of equity and asset allocation at Norio Rabini Global Economics. This is about a one minute and 28 second clip that we covered where she's basically saying that they are concerned that we are at a top. She says the S&P is currently defining gravity. The market shrugs off bad news and that they were preparing to take something off the table. They've had their wins and, and they're, I quote, eyeing the exits and they, you know, kind of, it was a good teaser to get into that, but she didn't go in detail as to what they were looking at. But this clip is with a uh, locksman Accuthon. Now, uh, we've had clips of his before on the show. He's a co-founder of something called, and the chief operating officer of what's called the Economic Cycles Research Center, or ECRC, I think, or maybe it's Institute, ECRI. And um, this is about a four-minute clip. And he was on, I believe it was CNBC, and he is literally out there. If you look him up right now at this date on Google, they, there's a lot of news about him calling for a recession, and what he says here is that GDP growth peaked back in third quarter of 2010, and it's been flatlining ever since. And we've also had a peak in personal income growth, which is turning downward. Broad sales growth is turning downward. And industrial production growth is turning downward. And it's actually at a 22-month low. And he talks about weaving this all into um, one central index. And uh, so that's interesting. He thinks we're in for recession and all that. But what's what's really key is what he talks about at the end of the clip, because at the end of the clip, if that's all going on, then the question is, why do we feel better? And why does it seem that the markets keep going up to the sky? Because there seems to be some disconnect, if what he's saying is true, between the economy and the market. And I think most of us hope that the market is somewhat tied to the economy because if it's not and there's artificial things happening, then how can we ever have any faith or trust or or how can we count on the stock market to do what's sensible and reasonable if it's not based on sure economic growth? If there's other things that are affecting it, let's say in Harry Case's, Harry Dent's case, he says crack cocaine fed by the Fed. So what what Lachsman talks about at the end of this clip is that the world's central banks are printing money like crazy and makes you feel better, but there's no velocity of money, which he'll explain, but velocity means it's all being stored up somewhere. It's not getting to people. It's not getting to Main Street or the economy. It's not causing business expansion. All that's happening is all that money has to do something, whoever's sitting on it is going to make it earn something. The Fed has made it impossible to get anything worthwhile guaranteed anymore. So all money is being pushed into risk. It's all on risk and or risk on, as they say. And he'll, he makes the claim that that's goose in the market. So listen to the end of the clip and you'll kind of see where uh, he kind of opens up about this a little bit. And I got some follow-up clips I want to go over, which will validate this further. Let's get a check on the U.S. markets and the current state of the economy this morning. Joining us is Lakshman Achuthan. He's the co-founder and chief operations officer at the Economic Cycle of Research Institute. And, you know, we take a look at all of this stuff, Locke. You had been calling for a recession. Yeah. And most of the numbers that we get point to all kinds of growth. We're feeling better about the jobs market. We're feeling better about uh, just the general growth, manufacturing growth that's coming in. What do you see, and is your call still stand? Uh, well, yes, our call still stands. And since our recession call, which was? Uh, which is at the end of September, late September. So it's five months ago. 
uh, all of the definitive, when you look at the definitive hard data that is used to officially date business cycle recessions, uh, it has been getting worse, not better, despite what the consensus view of an improving economy has been. And so I can very clearly explain that. I'd like to list them. Okay. okay. So GDP growth, uh, year over year, it peaks in Q3 of 2010 and falls down to 1.5% by Q2 of 2011 and has flatlined essentially since then. The last reading was 1.6. Similarly, personal income growth, how much the, I'm talking big aggregate numbers, it has the same kind of pattern. Broad sales growth, the broadest measures of sales, same kind of pattern. Industrial production growth year over year. As of January, it is at a 22-month low. So you put all of this. This is what normally is done. This is not something done just now for this conversation. This is how it's always done. You put it into a coincident index of the U.S. economy. And if you look at the year-over-year growth of that index, it's now at a 21-month low. So to be clear, the coincident index, it's the definitive measure of economic growth. In English, gr the growth has been slowing. But we Not, feel a lot better. You, we feel a lot think? better than we did. Well, well, let's get to that. But I want to be first on this. The coincident index, here's the chart right here. On the right-hand side of that chart, that's a 21-month low. Uh, it has not, you haven't had a decline like that in the past 50 years without a recession following in short order. Okay? So the right-hand side of that chart is a 21-month low in the growth rate of all of the indicators output jobs, income, and sales. Okay? Uh, and that's not cherry-picked data. That is the data that is always used. So that's the reality. Now, you know who seems to agree with you? Uh-oh. <laughs> now I'm worried. Well, you ought, to be able to, you ought to be able to figure this out yourself if you think about it. Sure. Um, the Fed. Well, yeah, no, I understand Because the Fed, that. how long ago, we all said, what? They said, we're, gonna, we're even going to stay low longer. Right. It's like, wait, everything seems to be improving. Why are you saying this now? What do you know that we don't yeah. know? Well, and the Fisher feds, and others. Because they knew what Locke knows. Well, and they, and maybe. I'm trying to help you. I'm not trying to hurt you. Thank you. I, You're I, I, I think you might I, need I a little. I'm going to take it. And you might need a little. Look, I wish this wasn't our forecast. I mean, we are the skunk of the garden party. It's no, it's no fun. But to the point of the Fed, What's going on there? You've got you've never seen something like this. The world's central banks, plural, are printing money like crazy. Like they know. So it's part of the reason you feel better, right? Because that does make you feel a little bit better. But go to where that interacts with the economy. You look at the velocity of money. How often does money exchange? All that money that's going in, they're goosing the money supply. How often does it exchange in the economy? That's a really important um, metric on the health of the economy. It has dropped to a record low in the United States. It's near a record low in Europe. It's even near a record low in China. Okay, These are not symptoms of health. And when you have all that money out there, it's got to do something. So this, it is boosting the market. That's, our, that's a fact. That's a fact. Okay, well, let's see if anybody else thinks that. Now, um, the other thing we're going to include on this, really important that I want to tell you by the end of this thing is, what I could not get into on the air was another whole situation about the banking system. Now, the reason I bring that into it is that is that we have, I mean, there's two great factors that I'm greatly concerned about. One is just when things seem to be going better, perhaps it's artificial hydrogen being pumped in 
by an artificial source that at some point's got to end. It is, as Harry Dent says, it's drugs and you're trying to keep the patient alive with more drugs. But if that's what it takes to keep the patient alive, you can't ever get off the drugs, let alone there is a second situation in the background, which is that the banking system that brought us down has not been fixed. And I'm going to combine those two stories. And I couldn't talk about the second story on the broadcast. We ran out of time. We had to just focus on this sort of pumping up of the stimulus bubble. Let's get through the rest of this on the stimulus bubble. And then I want to talk to you and give you some information about why the banking system is just at risk of another 2008 as it ever was before. But let's go into this next clip. And this is actually Dent talking. No, actually, let's go into David Stockman. Now, David Stockman was on the Bill Moyers show. Excellent, excellent series on crony capitalism. And we're going to come back to Stockman, who had a lot to say about why the banking system didn't get fixed. But as a little eddy that happened within that dialogue he was having with Bill Moyers, he also talked about the free money that banks got. And what do they do with free money if they're not going to loan it out? They're going to find a way for it to roost somewhere and earn more. And it in itself, and this is you know, what did the last QE quantitative easing was $600 billion. When it are, when that has to float into the markets, not based on the desirability of, of the general economy getting better and people wanting to own stocks, but just because that money's got to go somewhere, we're darn not, well, well not going to loan it to the American people, which American people don't necessarily want to borrow it because... The baby boom generation is trying to pay down debt. So it's another counter incentive to that velocity of money going anywhere. Um, But we will um, let's explore this from David Stockman, what he says about where all that money went and its effect on the markets. What do you mean by the free money that banks are using uh, overnight? Well, by that, we mean when the Fed, uh, Federal Reserve uh, sets the so-called federal funds rate, at 10 basis points, where it is today, that more or less guarantees banks can go into the Fed window, the discount window, and borrow at 10 basis points. And then you take that money and you buy a government bond that is yielding 2% or 3% or buy some corporate bonds that are yielding 5%. Or if you want to really get aggressive, buy some Australian dollars that have been going up or buy some cotton futures. Um, And this is really what has been going on in our markets. The cheap funding, which is guaranteed by the Fed, the investment of that cheap funding into speculative assets, and then pocketing the spread. And you can make huge amounts of money as long as the music doesn't stop. And when the music stops, then all of a sudden the cheap overnight money dries up. This is what's happening in Europe today. This is what happened in 2008. And then people are stuck with all of these risky assets, and they can't fund them. They owe cash to the people they borrowed Uh, overnight from or uh, on a weekly basis. That's what creates the so-called contagion. That's what creates the downward spiral. Now, unless we let those burn out, uh, it'll be done over and over. In other words, (laughs) if, uh, you know, if if a lesson isn't learned, then the uh, error will be repeated over and over. All right. So I want to talk a little bit about quantitative easing. And I'm assuming you know what that is. You know what the term is. I don't want to go back to uh, economics 101. But what's interesting is that we have this Keynesian model. And Keynesian economics basically says 
that as long as there's confidence, then markets and economies grow. And, and it's very, just very centric on confidence, which means that governments can do things like pump something full of drugs as long as it's done in the name and gets the result of restoring confidence, then that momentum itself will start to build and, and take up. And, and that's, you know, there's, I'm sure there's more to it and all kinds of theories, but it's a key element of Keynesian economics is that we have these cycles, business goes in cycles and that when cycles deteriorate, the government must step in and mitigate those in order to short, shorten them and relieve the problem. Now, you know, boy, what an interesting conversation. So yes, we had, um, we had the, uh, great depression and I guess that was just a natural cycle had to be a cycle and everyone, you know, if, if, if we weren't Keynesian and we didn't want to help those people, cause obviously if you're Keynesian, you're saying, let's spend, let's tax the rich, which I'm not I'm not against raising taxes and getting some revenue in here. I'm not being political about this. But the idea is let's let's get the government to raise revenues and replace what the economy lost and and so people don't get hurt. And it's a very valid concern for people to not want to get hurt. Now, on the other hand, if you wanted to go to the full other extreme, you'd say Hey, well, that stuff happens and sorry, suckers, but you got hurt. You should have known better. And that's, you know, we, we aren't, aren't, that's a natural cycle. I would submit that it's all about ethics and criminality. And, and, and I would submit that these cycles aren't necessarily a natural phenomenon, that they're very well helped by mankind. And instead of trying to fix them when they're broke, instead of getting an argument about uh, what, you know, uh, what are we going to do once it breaks and, and who's going to pay for this? Uh, we need to, I think, uh, be a little more forward looking and start looking at the ethics um, of our of how our whole system works. And that's not a socialist viewpoint. But give me an example. And I'm sorry to rant on you here, but it's 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 my opportunity. It's my podcast and it's important. So, um, you know, I love the work of John Talbot. John Talbot is a visiting scholar from UC, uh, at UCLA, and in 2003, John wrote the book, uh, The Coming Crash of the Housing Market. Now, no one knew the housing market was going to crash. It was, no one could have predicted it. Oh, bullpucky. People totally predicted it. It was a totally knowable phenomenon, and John wrote about it in 03, and he wrote about it in 06, and I was following his book, and here in Southern California, we were desperately doing seminars to tell people, get the equity out of your house. If you're not going to sell it, get it and hold on to it because the economy, it's going to burst. It's going to burst the economy. Interest rates will fall. It'll be the cheapest money you ever got your hands on. And if you wait till after the bust, you'll never get your hands on it. And I have to say, you know, I'm, uh, fortunately I, I followed my own advice and, and, um, Glad I did. It actually was one of the best financial moves I made. I didn't consume that money. I didn't go buy jet skis with it. But I have a handicapped son. He is uh, uh, developmentally disabled. And uh, we actually used some of that money and some money left from Grandpa. We got him a a condo this year. And my 26-year-old is finally getting a place of his own. So 10 years from now, when I'm 65 and he's 36, I still don't have a a dependent baby uh, around my, uh, my, my skirt, my... My uh, uh, whatever my you know the legs of my pants, so uh, that 
thank God, was a move that I made at the top of the market that actually allowed us to get a second property and put my disabled son in there. So <clears throat> point is, this stuff's not, not unknowable, you know? I mean, I read the books. I looked at people, and John Talbot was a big, big uh, influence on my seeing that coming. Now, John said something interesting in his book because— and we've had some email conversations, John and I. We interviewed him back in 09 for the show. And um, when I have something to ask him about, he's pretty good about responding to my emails. And one of the things he, we, we talked about was having to regulate the bank system. John is, a, is big on, you know, we've got to get some regulation in. And I said, you know, that's not going to sit well with my Republican friends that don't like anything being regulated. And I'm not sure I innately disagree with that. But... Here's what he said, and I think it makes a lot of sense, and it really tweaked my thinking about how we get ahead of these ups and downs. And, and he, he said, look, you've already got a banking system that is backed by the government. So the government is in the banking system. It's the FDIC. Everybody knows that if you put your money in the bank, it would always be protected. And what happened over the last uh, decade, really— is that all the restrictions on monitoring that were taken off the banks. So when you have something that you know can't break, the temptation to break it and the fact that you're not going to break it because somebody's going to bail you out causes in, in economics what's called moral hazard. It is the actual temptation to become unethical or to do unethical things because there's a false sense of security. So you have the FDIC in that structure already creating sort of an invitation to moral hazard to the banks, right? So now you have to ask yourself, if you're going to say don't regulate banks, then let's get fully, fully libertarian and caveat emptor it and say, good, let's tell the American people that the bank, there's no backing on the banking system. We're going to go back to the 1920s. Your bank goes broke, you're out of luck, okay? And what that would do is that would force the banking system to justify to its customers what it does with its money and to tell them. And, of course, if they lie, we still, even the biggest libertarian in the world still wants laws about fraud. So, you know, they can't lie. But the point is that would stimulate people asking their bank, I want to see your books, I want to see your report, and where's my money going? And, and so that would be the, if we don't want to bail out too big to fail, that's the other way we could go is just, there's no backstop. There's just no backstop. And wherever your money goes, you better check. And we're going to let the market put the ethics in. Is that totally workable? I don't know. I think that I'm not ready for that big of a change. So from my point of view, um, what you're also going to hear about on this and, uh, I must admit, I'm very politically schizophrenic. I like a free market. I like liberty. Uh, I, I like going back to the maybe the gold standard, uh, like Ron Paul says. But at the same time, I'm not ready to get rid of the FDIC, and I would like to see further regulation on the banks. So I don't know what color that makes me. But the bottom line is, is that um, that's what this story is about. The story is about the fact that um, we have these forces where we don't regulate the guys that rip us off. We don't regulate the unethical criminals, the banksters, so to speak. And you're going to hear in a minute when I get through Harry Dent that 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 system has not been fixed. In fact, most of the banksters were promoted to higher jobs and higher posts. But on the other hand, 
Do we want the government to bail everybody out and keep putting the stock market on drugs? Is it so absolutely vital to this country that the stock market is the most important thing to save? So Harry Dent, what he had to say earlier, if you've been listening to the show, is that at some point the Fed will get checkmated because as the Fed keeps trying to pump the economy up with more and more printed money, that money has to be bought by other countries somewhere. They have to come in and provide the, you know, China is going to buy those bonds that allow us to print that money out of nowhere. It's really Chinese money at the end of the day. But, you know, if they'll, if they'll loan it to us, we'll pay them some interest. So what happens is that at some point when you go too far, the world loses confidence. And that's what you're seeing in Europe. And so then the market itself puts a stop to it. The market says, Okay, wait a minute. You know, QE1, QE2, but now we're worried about one, your economy is slowing, you're taking on more debt, and we're not sure you can pay that debt. We're starting to get doubtful you can pay it. Instead of 3%, we want 4, 5, 6, 7% interest. And that alone would put enough pressure on the Fed to say, you can't do QE anymore. Can't do it. And now that you're going to have the economy come off drugs, now listen to the big sucking sound. So that is. That is the dilemma, and that's why I'm so pessimistic in a way that all we're going to have for the next, the rest of this decade is more bubbles as we try to transition into something that is a real balance. And in the end, what we need is ethics in on the banking system and the government to somehow let off the drugs long enough to get a resettling. And that's what we're helping you through when we are doing this show. That's the issues. That's really our editorial viewpoint. So with that all being said, I want to go to a clip by Harry Dent on, and by the way, I really want to hear from you guys. Um, Share the show, circulate it around. If you like what we're talking about and the way we're addressing these issues, please uh, go to Facebook, uh, contact us there and Twitter and all the other things and email me directly. Email me, Bruce at straighttalkwealth.com. And I want to know that you're hearing this show and that you're involved in the conversation. Go to our YouTube channel. Um, you get Go through the website. The, the YouTube channel, I, I tell you the name of it, but it's got vowels missing. It's too crazy. Go through the website. Get to the YouTube channel. Look at what we're doing there. And uh, we, I'd like to get some feedback, and I'd like to be involved in a conversation with you guys about that. And I'm very interested in your um, viewpoints. And you know what? If you're if you're not rude or crazy or insane, and you've got a good uh, point of view, I would love to turn this podcast into a dialogue and get some of you. We can call you up. We can we can have a conversation. If you've got a great new fresh point of view on this, I'd like to know that you're out there, and let's work you into the extended podcast. That would like uh, nothing would give me more pleasure. That all being said, now let's go to Harry Dent and let's him let him talk about why he thinks that that pressure that was preventing the Fed from going to QE three that he thought was going to be there has been lifted because even though our debt ain't very good to buy anymore, Europe's a lot worse and we look really good compared to Europe. And so the green light has been actually turned on for more QE and more drugs. And so now whatever the suffering was going to be by coming off those drugs, he thinks we're not going to see now till 2013, 2014. So here's this clip. Harry Dent, stocks have rallied this year, but you're of course not buying into it. Tell me why. Well, 
Long-term, the Fed is fighting the aging of the baby boomers, which is a very predictable trend, and $42 trillion in debt, private debt, that started to deleverage in 2008. To me, they can't win this war over time, but I tell you, the Fed just got a gift. This flight of capital from Europe caused Treasury bond yields to go down below 2% just when we had strong fourth quarter growth, which we predicted months ago. We said fourth quarter, first quarter is going to be strong. Inflation is going to stay up. I thought that would put a break on QE3. With this lower rates, the markets are saying, go ahead, QE3. So I do think we're going to slow. Uh, later this year, I think QE2 is going to wear off on a one-year lag, as it, just like QE1 did. But I think this time the Fed's going to stop in. You get QE3. So we get a mini crash. We get a rally in the year end, probably to new highs. And then I'm more worried about the markets in 2014 and 13 and 14 because baby boomer trends are just going to keep working against this recovery. It's not a sustainable thing. So we get QE3 later this year. Now, does the fact that it's an election year matter? Of course, they say that the markets do well in the year before election years, but are we going to get some more money because this is an election year? Yeah, in general, election years aren't bad. I mean, they're going to make the economy look as good as possible. Now, last year, I would have thought, yeah, but the Fed's running out of bullets because, again, we expected expansion of the economy short term. And I said, well, you can't do QE3 when that's happening. But now, again, with these low rates, I, I think they will. So I think it matters some. And, uh, but, but we see from 2012 to 14, this is kind of the crisis time. This is when the baby boomers switch from what they call, we call the kind of peak and plateau phase of spending, they actually start declining into retirement. And how does one invest in this demographic period that you're looking at? Very carefully. I mean, it's a bubble boom. We've had three bubbles. You know, 90, 95 to 99, 2002 to 7, and now 2009 into 2012. Bubbles burst. I don't think this bubble's ready to burst yet at this point. You know, it's, it's hard to judge a bubble. But you have to be investing in funds that don't correlate with the market. You have to have a, a point of view of, look, the more the market goes up here, the more I take off the table because the downside's way greater than the upside in a bubble. And if we do see a crash, say, in 2013 or 14, that's when you can buy again. So you've you got to go opposite to trends because this is a sideways gyrating market. So finally, we've been talking about the United States and our demographic problem. Pretty much Europe is ahead of us when it comes to that demographic problem. So what about the emerging markets? Everyone says that this is going to be the century of China. Yeah. So is that the place to be, or are they going to run into their own headwinds because they've overbuilt? Well, China's overbuilt dramatically. China's been moving people from rural to urban areas where you triple their income, so it's a good formula for growth. But they've been overbuilding to do that. All these people come in rurals, they're building homes, they're building infrastructures, they're building factories and stuff that they're not even using. 24% of homes are vacant. Whole cities like Ordos, a million, totally vacant. So China's got its own bubble. And I think when we slow down, they slow down, they have a hard landing, and then about a decade from now, the emerging world comes back stronger than ever. But China will not be as strong. China is the one emerging country where their workforce is going to be shrinking like Japan and Europe. India, Southeast Asia are the places I'd want to invest after a crash. All right, you're listening to the extended podcast version of Straight Talk Wealth Radio, heard around the country on AM Broadcast Radio. But you know what? If you listen to the podcast, this, this, is what, this is what I love. This is the part of radio I really love to do, and I'm so thankful that the AM broadcast allows us, allows me the, the uh, uh, support to be able to do this. Now, um, I want to tell you a couple things. First of all, I don't just do this show because I'm kind of like a, a spectator about what's going on. I ha am a financial advisor. I've been a retirement planner in Southern California for a dozen years. 
Um, and I have to look at these factors and I'm, I'm sorry, but I just have a conscience. I mean, the way our field is instructed, it's platitudes, it's formulas, and and frankly, it's just all the sales gimmicks. And, you know, I got to make revenue at the end of the day, too, when I work with my clients. But I've got a conscience about this, and I just could not sit and go diversified portfolios of pie charts and everything's the stock market is your best long-term investment. For crying out loud, for the last dozen years, it's gone nowhere long-term. I mean, what makes a long-term investor anymore? You know, I, well, 12 years, Bruce, you didn't really give it a chance. You should have given it 20. Oh, okay. Well, if the next 10 years is like the last 10 years, and I guess I'm a fool for thinking 20 years was long-term. That's not long-term. 30 years is long-term. I mean, I guess maybe in the days where we're living to 100, that'll be the case. But for now, 10 years should have gotten you somewhere. And all I'm saying is that I've had to work with my clients to strategize what do you do about this unpredictability? And do I really want to put myself and all my clients um total financial future into events that I can neither predict or control. Now, I'll tell you what I see as the answer, at least from our end. And and Harry Dent mentioned it just at the end of that clip. He talked about correlative or non-correlative investing, meaning putting your money somewhere that's just not tied to what the markets are doing. What happened to me is uh, about a dozen years ago plus, when I started into the field, um, got my securities license and everybody was, you know, you could throw a dart at a dartboard of mutual funds and everything, anywhere it landed was going to go up. So uh, it was a fun time. And uh, we were all so excited that everybody just put your money away in mutual funds and just doesn't really matter much. And it all goes up. We're getting a lot of dough in the door. And then of course the tech bubble crashed. Um, Point I was, what was the point I was making about that? Um, oh, so I was doing these pensions. I got this little particular niche as a financial advisor where I was seeing small business owners because there were certain strategies that could be applied to their benefit that large Fortune 500 companies were applying that I had studied in some of my texts with the state of California. But because the little guy didn't have as much money, it was like all the guys that had done this advanced study just wanted to talk to seven-figure earners and boards of directors of major corporations. No one was talking to the mid-sized entrepreneurs. So I found that to be a good market. I went out and saw these folks and knocked on doors, and I started getting accounts with guys that made maybe a half a million dollars a year, successful entrepreneurs. Now, we would start to make these accounts work and, you know, a little extra we could put away for the boss. I wouldn't necessarily have to water down by, you know, the employees could have their plan. He could have his plan. And after a few years of doing that, we got some sizable sums put into these accounts. And I really, I had the securities license. I wanted to, you know, let's have some fun, boss. Let's, let's get going and invest this money. And my hand kept getting slapped and it. It's amazing how I learned this, you know, through my own profession through, through really the, uh, being ridiculed by my clients. And, and what, it, what they'd say is, Bruce, stop treating this like an investment. You obviously don't know why I am even putting this money away, what my intent is. You see, Bruce, I'm a, I'm a half a million dollar earner or more or less. I'm successful. Successful run a company. Okay. And I have investments. I got a lot of investments. And folks, some of my clients have gotten filthy rich off their investing. And some of them have lost their shirt at times. 
been at the top and fallen off. And what's really interesting is they said, Bruce, I have lots of investments, but you know what I don't have? And I thought you understood that when you walked in the door. I don't have what the school teacher has. I don't have what the fireman has or the cop has. I don't have what the clerk down at the DMV has if he just works here long enough. And that is just some kind of pension that isn't tied to my investments. Something that would just, you tell me what I need to put into it, and I want it guaranteed, and I realize it's not going to be as aggressive as the 10 30% we're making now, 15 to 30% in the 90s. But I just got a funny feeling. I've gotten hurt on investments before. This just needs to be a pension. So you tell me what I need to fund it. It's not all of my money. We'll fund it. And I want to know what the check's going to be when I'm 65 or 70. Can you guarantee that, Bruce? And I went, I'll get back to you on that one. As I started to research that area of pension planning. And still in that area today, although we've really gotten beat up by these low interest rates that the Fed has just undercut anybody anymore that's trying to be a saver, we are still seeing guaranteed rates on what's called the income value, meaning the money that you're one day. Actually, there's two guarantees to a pension. So let me clarify that. A good pension is non-correlative. It's going to give you a rate and it's going to stick to that rate. Uh, We promoted a... um, about a year and a half ago, two years ago, an article that appeared in the Wall Street Journal regarding H. Lee Scott, the chief operating officer of, uh, or chief executive officer, maybe was CEO of Walmart. And there was this article, it was a very class warfare type article. It was like, you know, the average person with a 401k has lost 30 to 40% of their value in their 401k leading up to 09 when the market finally started to turn around. Terrible, terrible years. And isn't it absolutely a bad thing that, you know what, Walmart executives earned millions of dollars in their account? Why did, the, why did all the workers lose their fortunes while the heads of Wall Street uh, and the heads of Walmart were making millions of dollars? Because the head guys in Wall Street and the heads of the executives had real pensions. They didn't have 401ks. And they were only earning 6.6%. But what does H. Lee Scott know that he would keep $47 million in his own private pension that doesn't even play the market? It just earns 6.6% year after year. And when everybody lost a ton of money, he actually gains, I think it was $2.5 million in his account at 6.6%. So... This was the mindset that I had to learn. I came to find out that in, when you're dealing long-term, banks are short-term. That's liquid money. It's emergency fund. It's fix-your-roof money. You're only going to get a half a percent because it's got to be liquid money and money out. But when you start to, one, deal with longer-term money that you're creating as a pension concept, which we are saying is the answer to all these bubbles and all of that volatility, If you create that, you can get substantially higher interest rates. And if you want to really get some insight on this, go to our website and click on the solutions page. Go to the solutions page and watch a 40-minute slideshow I just got through re-editing that will make this crystal clear. It's called Historic Rates of Return, Wall Street's Dirty Little Lie. And it shows you that any kind of 
average return out of something that could actually lose value is a lie. And if you think about those statistics of averages in investments that can go up and down, you're, you're dealing with a stat that means nothing at all. And we contrast that to just compounding interest year after year after year. So the pension concepts that we build will always compound interest. The second guarantee is that and this is the way pensions work. They grow until you use them. And one day you pull the lever and you start to empty that out. So there's a formula of, of what it's growing to until you reach a certain age. And most pensions have this in one form or another. That's pretty common, which is if you hit a certain age or you wait a certain number of years, this is your payout and it's guaranteed. Now, it could be that if you live a long life, you're going to experience the greatest concern that all seniors have, which is outliving their money. It's a, it's a terrible threat. And by the way, uh, if you respond to the podcast as well, there's a really awesome GAO report that we went over uh, on the broadcast show this week. Uh, it was from June 2011, last year. It is a report to the Chairman uh, Special Committee on Aging U.S. Senate from the GAO. It is, I don't know, 90 pages or something. It's called Retirement Income. Ensuring Income Throughout Retirement Requires Difficult Choices. And uh, if you respond, you know, write us or somewhere, let me know you're out there and you're interested. We'll make sure you get a copy of that report. Uh, And that report talks a lot about the fact that everybody's taking money out of investments. The old, the pride, the Bob Hope generation used to have a pension, which means you're going to land somewhere on your retirement date. We can predict what that check's going to be. It's not correlative to the markets. And if you run out of money in your account, because of what's called pooled risk. A pension usually has a pooled group of people in there. Some of them are going to pass away early and some are going to live way too long and their account's going to be really down to zero. Those payments will not stop. They will continue to come. And so when we look at this bubble economy and where we're going in the future uh, in, in this decade and the baby boomers that don't have time to make another mistake, these concepts are crucial, and that's very much what my mission has been. Now, do you want to take advantage of that? little plug here. <laughs> uh, it's a big contrast compared to the uh, show uh, on AM radio because we're desperately trying to get people to call. But what we do is called a retirement roadmap. Go look at the website. Um, the retirement roadmap page is different than the solutions page. Go watch the uh, the slideshow on the solutions page. Then go to the retirement roadmap page, and you can either call us at 888-882-5578, 888-882-5578. A Straight Talk Wealth advisor in your area will respond to that. Uh, these advisors think like I do about this situation. That's how they came on board with us. And uh, they know how to execute a retirement roadmap, which really is an income analysis uh, based on let, what do you want to see your portfolio do? It's a very fluid conversation, but we have the software that runs the numbers. You want to see what do you think your portfolio is going to earn? Two, four, six, eight percent. Let's plug that in more or less. Might you have a loss in your portfolio? What would that do to your lifestyle up the road? What do you think inflation is going to be? And from this, you can actually see what you're allowed to spend out of your portfolio each year and what will be the longevity of that portfolio. That's where you start. If you start with that service, we do that for free. Uh, go to the Again, go to the website, the Retirement Roadmap page, or call 888-882-5578. We start with that, and then we can look at if we were to build a guaranteed pension concept for you that would be non-correlative to these markets, 
What would that look like specifically in your case? One last thing, too. I've also had to put out um, other materials. We have a great report. You can sign up for it at our website called Inflate. And a great report. I'm being a little bit conceited here. But I really am very, very proud of how I put this together. It's about 45 pages. It's very illustrated. Uh, Amy Hilston in our home office of our sponsor that uh, helps us keep things going called uh, Medallion Financial Distributors. Um, did a beautiful layout job on this. I used to have <laughs> kind of a rickety one we did out of my office, and Amy's really stepped it up. Anyway, it's a real great port. It's called Inflation or Deflation, America's Monetary System in Crisis and How to Plan for It. And it I give you in that report, first of all, I set the scene why the inflation or deflation question is probably the most crucial question you need to be asking yourself <laughs> right now. Is are we going to have hyperinflation or are we going to have another deflationary scenario? Because if you call that wrong and you invest all your eggs in one of them and we get the other, you could be wiped out. I give you a strategy in that report on how to manage both concerns simultaneously. And there's another good report we can provide called How to Make Your Money Last a Lifetime Guaranteed. And it goes into these pension-like concepts. All right. Anyway, I wanted to give you that because we're talking about a lot of problems here. I just wanted to give you kind of where we see the solution is to some of this. Um, anything else really we need to cover here on this one subject? Uh, listen to the show. We went over the GAO study. Uh, we'll give that to you for no charge or no obligation if you respond in some way and request a retirement roadmap. We will make sure you get that report. Um, now, let's go into the banking system a little bit. I want to talk about... We really did a prior show. Uh, the timing was a little bit off, and I think we lost people on that show. Um, that was about 2008, could the banking crisis return? But while we look at what the Fed's doing in the current stimulus bubble, the other thing that I feel is very underlying here is the fact that um, I don't think the banking system's fixed. Now, I highly recommend that you go to read, read, go read Gretchen. If you want to know how it broke, you want to know what the corruption was underneath in at least one sector, which is Fannie Mae. Fannie Mae had a $7 billion a year subsidy from the government, and it spent a third of its, a third of its $7 billion simply fortifying its political connections so that it would never be doubted and it could rule the world of mortgages and take risks that it would never be challenged for. That's in the book called Reckless Endangerment by Gretchen Morganson. She's a New York Times writer. A really nice historical piece of work. Now, she claims it hasn't been fixed. And unfortunately, I didn't think the book was quite forward-looking enough. But it sure covered what happened. Um, but Bill Moyers, uh, if you look at the series he did on crony capitalism, meaning that we've got guys that have gotten into power in certain places that ruin the economy uh, in the private sector. And it is the marriage between the government and the private sector and the creation of too big to fail. Something's going on in this country where institutions, you know, we, we don't like too big to fail. Don't bail them out. The question is, what does that mean to me and you if they don't get bailed out? We've got to fix inherently how anybody gets to that position and buys out the politicians and whether it's Goldman Sachs or whatever, uh, Matt Taibbi did a great article in uh, Rolling Stone a while ago about uh, Goldman Sachs. And listen, again, I, you know, left, right, I'm with all of them. I, I just want the truth. So anyway, 
Uh, what I want to go over here is I'm going to pick a couple clips out that I want to play you between off the Bill Moyer series about the banking system. So bear with me. We probably got another 20 minutes of show left here and I'm going to let you go. But uh, I want to get into this story and retell it a little bit relative to the risk that the boomers are facing about whether they're going to have sustained growth sitting in the markets or whether they really need to be looking at these non-correlative uh, concepts for their future. And the GAO report will completely back me up, completely back me up about non-correlative we must replace the pension concept. It got taken away and it was the most destructive action to planning retirement that this new generation, the baby boomers, are going to have to deal with. So let me pick a couple clips here. All right, let's just start right for a gut blow here with uh, uh, Gretchen Morganson, where she's Bill Moyers is asking her, is this banking crisis ever going to happen again? Uh, She's going to make a blunt statement about it, and then we'll go back in and uh, support why she feels that way with another clip. One of journalism's premier business reporters is with me now. Gretchen Morganson won the Pulitzer Prize for her fearless exposés of Wall Street's dirty secrets and reckless behavior. In her fair game column for the New York Times, she digs into some of the most disturbing and complex scandals of our time. Her recent book with Joshua Rosner on crony capitalism at Fannie Mae is called Reckless Endangerment, How Outsized Ambition, Greed, and Corruption Led to Economic Armageddon. Welcome. Thanks, Bill. You just heard David Stockman say it could happen again. Do you think it could happen again? It will happen again. And the unfortunate fact is we did not fix the problem. The Dodd-Frank legislation, which was supposed to be the fix-it for the enormous crisis that erupted in 2008, failed in so many ways to really address the major issues, the most important being too big to fail. Did virtually nothing to cut these big and impossible-to-manage banks down to size. Listening to both David Stockman and you, after what we've been through since 2008, the millions of lost jobs, the millions of foreclosed homes, the people whose pensions have been shrunk. You both are saying not only can it happen again, but it will happen again. I mean, I have to tell you, it boggles my mind. When I was living through it, watching it in terror, literally at my desk at the New York Times, because it really was on the precipice, there we were, I thought to myself, we will address this because this is so frightening and so scary and so damaging to this country. And I thought, we will address it because this is the big one. This is the big crisis that we've been leading up to. Long-term capital management didn't really destabilize the system. The internet bubble didn't really destabilize the system. This was the big one. And yet, the response was so lame and so ineffectual that it absolutely will happen again. For those of you that don't go back to the 80s, long-term capital was one of big hedge funds that just governments and pensions and everybody had gone into. And they they were, um, uh, I think it was not Pulitzer Prize, it was a Nobel Prize winning economists were running it. They they won tremendous Nobel awards for how smart they were in their formulas of economics. And it was one of the first two bigs to fail. And the whole thing came crashing down because the theory was only as good as the environment when the environment shifted. I think it was the Russian, some of the Russian ruble default or something just ripped it to shreds. And uh, that was so big and it reached so far. And so many people were into that, that um, anyway, we thought 
that we would learn something from that. But Gretchen says no. All right. So just to backpedal on the story a little bit, I want to go into a clip where she talks about um, what she learned in doing her book and uh, the lessons of Fannie Mae and how that brought about uh, Too Big to Fail and, and that there really isn't any consequence for the people involved. And what did you learn about crony capitalism in doing reckless endangerment based upon the mortgage industry business? What I learned was going back in time and examining Fannie Mae. And as you know, that's the company that doesn't make mortgages, but it buys mortgages and it um, uh, guarantees them. So it is a huge player in this business. That was the, really the quintessential crony capitalism, that company. They learned how to manipulate their regulator, to neutralize their regulator, to manipulate Congress, throw money around. They really told, almost showed Wall Street how to do it. They gave them a playbook. And what they did was they wrapped themselves in the American flag of home ownership so that they were impervious from any critics. Fannie Mae, who used its implicit government guarantee for its own purposes, it, it was able to borrow money at a far cheaper rate than any other financial right. company. And that subsidy, it took one-third of that, billions of dollars every year, for itself. So it really taught Wall Street how to uh, be the quintessential, you know, crony capitalists, how to use your um, influence, how to use your money to um, buy protection for yourself on Capitol Hill and to manipulate the dialogue so that there were no critics, no criticism of what you do. This whole idea of this financial services industry having to be protected. Now, of course, we know that Fannie and Freddie are into the taxpayer for $150 billion and no end in sight. So we know how that movie ends, and yet that is the practice, and it continues. All right. Hey, go to... um Go to Bill Moyer's website and uh, validate him for the work he's doing on this. Um, Okay, I'm going to just move right to another one last clip from Gretchen Morganson where uh, she's going to talk about uh, what the outcome of all this was and what makes her angry and and, and the fact that all of this that has happened has not been changed. We're going to go to Stockman, and I'm going to try to see if I can touch a little bit on Bill Isaac. Uh, we are hoping to interview Bill Isaac shortly. I've been emailing back and forth with him. He is the he was the head. He's the former head of the FDIC. He ran the FDIC during the 1980s savings and loan crisis, and he's been eager to interview with us. So we're just trying to get that set up. But I, I did uh, steal Bill. You're probably going to hear this show. Uh, I took a little something off your website and uh, wanted to feature it. We've been trying to squeeze it in on the air as a warm up to our interview. And uh, you folks will get to hear this on the podcast. So if I can just not keep you too much longer. Here's uh, Gretchen talking about the outcome of all of this. What makes you angry about this? Well, it makes me angry because there has been no penalty. There has been no price for the people who created the mess. I thought there would be uh, uh, some sort of solution, some addressing of the problem, some punishment, penalty, whatever you want to call it. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, you know, three, four years later, nothing was done. And so I am angry that nothing was done because that was one hell of a crisis. And that was big enough for me, thank you very much, to learn the lesson of what we must do going forward to prevent another such thing. And yet we didn't. And that makes me angry because I have a son and he is going to live through this and he is going to pay the price for this. 
not to mention, uh, you know, everyday people who are going to live through it maybe within 10 years. I don't think it's so far off that we're going to have another crisis. It's really interesting that we're still archaeologists. I'm a journalist, but I feel like I'm an archaeologist digging in this uh, crisis and still coming up with, you know, shards of pottery that I dust off and then I can fit into the puzzle because nobody wanted anyone to understand what really happened. And there has been a tremendous, um, you know, attempt by the powers that be, and I'm talking about the United States government, the Federal Reserve, the Treasury, banks, private institutions as well, to prevent us from really learning the full extent of this. And so here we are, we're still uncovering things that we didn't know back in 2008, 2007. So no, I don't think anything significant has changed. Wow. Okay. Well, um, now you know my concern. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, you know, more power to those people that know how to invest, know how to see these bubbles coming and, and get in and out. You know, I respect that. But the average American is is Joe Boeing, Lockheed, uh, Ford, Chrysler, whatever. It, it is the person working their job that doesn't have time to outsmart this chaotic market. It is the small business person who's building their, their, their business so they can save something. They've got a source to put money away from. And very few of us really have the time to figure out who's schnookering us and, and whether it's going to happen again. And, and that is where I, you know, I'm one of you guys. I'm one of you guys. I mean, I might, I've studied this enough to know that it's manipulated and I don't like playing that game. And I'm, I, I just look for the sure bets, but I, I, I have a tough time betting on wall street. Um, you know, so anyway, I, I, I'm a, a much simpler person than that. And again, uh, what we do and what our focus is, is we look at building real pensions that are non-correlative to what the markets are doing, that simply compound interest, Go to the website, look at the solutions page, watch the video on um, historic rates of return, Wall Street's dirty little lights, about 40 minutes. It will get you to understand the difference between averaging a return out of the market and simply compounding year after year. And if you then ask for retirement roadmap on the retirement roadmap page, we can begin to look at how to build one of these non-correlative pension concepts, which have two basic guarantees. One, your money's going to grow and compound year after year at a, such, at a certain rate, depending on what we can get out of the market. But those rates are way more than what you get out of the banks because they're longer-term bank CDs. What happens at the bank, that's in-and-out money. That's not retirement money. But when you're dealing with building a retirement fund and you're looking at something that's really going to service you for probably at least 20 years or 30 years that you're going to build up and take income out of, then you can find rates that are 6 to 8% still. Now, they all have their little provisos, and there's way these ways that even our guys that provide these can, you know, there's a lot of competition in the field. So they work their numbers to look sexier than the other guys' numbers. Our Straight Talk Wealth Advisors can help you get through that and get the facts. But it is that concept of building a non-correlative growth followed by an extrication or a distribution of those funds, which even if your account goes to zero, you're still going to get checks because you're pooling the risk of distribution. That is the alternative look at this. And, and, and that is what I feel 
most of America, if they don't have a good, solid pension that's going to be behind them, needs to be thinking about that concept. All right. Uh, let me see what I got from David Stockman, if I can do this real quick, and then I want to get to Bill Isaac, and then we're going to wrap it up. I got a whole bunch of Moyer, a uh, whole bunch of Stockman clips here, so I'm going to try to just put these back to back here and uh, weave it through so we can move on. So uh, let's l- listen to this first one. It's a great one on uh, what came out of 2008. He abbreviates it as 208. Um, when you look at what came out of uh, 208, the only thing that came out of 208 was a stabilization of these giant uh, Wall Street banks. Uh, nothing came out of 208 that really helped uh, Main Street. Nothing came out of 208 that addressed our fundamental problems that we've lost a huge uh, swath of our middle-class jobs. Nothing came out of 208 that made financial discipline or fiscal discipline possible. It was uh, justified as sort of expediency. We need to do this. We need to stop the contagion. But it wasn't thought through as to what the long-term implications of this would be. Okay, I got to play this next clip because he actually named some names in this one. And uh, this is an example of how nothing's changed. I'm not going to take sides on this, but I just enjoy the fact that Stockman sticks his neck out and names names. We elect a new government because the public said, you know, we're scared. We want to change. And who did we get? We got Larry Summers. We got the same guy who had been one of the original architects of uh, the policy in the 1990s, the financialization policy, the too-big-to-fail policy. Who else did we get? We got Geithner as Secretary of the Treasury. He had been at the Fed in New York in October 2008, bailing out everybody in sight. General Electric got bailed out. Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, uh, all of the banks got bailed out in the architect of that bailout then becomes the Secretary of the Treasury. So it's another signal to the financial markets that nothing ever changes. The cronies of capitalism are in charge of policy. All right. Well, I wonder if any of this is important. Let's see uh, this next clip, whether any of this really matters. This is a serious situation, is it not? I think it is. And... um, but we also have to recognize the pessimism that the public reflects in the, in the surveys and polls is warranted. In other words, the public isn't being unduly pessimistic. It's not been overcome with some uh, kind of false wave of emotion. No, I think the American public sees very clearly the current system isn't working, that uh, the Federal Reserve is basically working in behalf of Wall Street, not Main Street, that Congress is owned lock, stock, and barrel by one after another after another special interest. And they logically say, how can we expect, uh, you know, uh, anything good to come out of this kind of process that seems to be getting uh, worse? So um, how do we turn that around? Uh, I think it's going to take, unfortunately, a real crisis before maybe the decks can be cleared. What would that look like? It will take something even more traumatic um, than we had in September 2008. But on the basis of the record, the lessons of the past, the experience you have just recounted and are writing about, do you see any early signs that we might turn the ship from the iceberg? No, I think we've learned no lessons. We really have not restructured our financial system. The big banks that existed then that were too big to fail are even bigger now. The top six banks then had $7 trillion of assets. Now they have 9 or $10 trillion. 
rather than uh, go to the fundamentals, uh, which um, have been totally neglected, uh, we've simply kind of papered over the current system and continued the game of having the Federal Reserve and the Treasury, if necessary, prop up all of this, uh, all of this uh, leverage and speculation, which isn't helping the economy. And, and when we talk about zero interest rates, that's not helping Main Street. Our problem in this economy is not our interest rates are too high. The zero interest rates are just more fuel for uh, leverage speculation for what's called the carry trade. And uh, that is uh, causing uh, windfall benefits to a few, but it's leaving the fundamental problems of our economy um, in worse shape than they've ever been. That's exactly what I'm talking about. That's exactly the point that I was making earlier. You know, this is a matter of ethics. It's not a matter of cycles in and out and whether we should, you know, replenish cycles when the natural cycle depletes. It is a matter of of getting gamed, okay? And I don't want to get into the class thing of the 1% versus the 99. I know the 1%s out there, whatever they are, but the thing that we start getting into when we don't name names is we get into generalizations about anybody who's rich, let's throw the bums out, let's attack anybody who has wealth. And I think we have to be really, really careful about that because it's not about those who have wealth versus not. There is... There are people that game the system, that have stolen from us, that have been the cronies that, that, that make their, their risks that they take to make billions and billions of dollars, and they make the government clean it up. There's specific people that have committed specific, uh, and the problem is that sometimes they're not crimes. And, and I don't mean to rant on this either. This is like way out of my league for uh, being a financial advisor. But the bottom line is it's about ethics. It's not about natural cycles in the right way and the wrong way. We, we have a government now that is desperately trying to use Keynesian economics to offset an ethical failure. And it's going to happen, as these guys say, again and again and again until we get some system of ethics in that lets us actually invest our money and grow our money as citizens in something that is truly a source of expansion and not a source of hysteria and delusion. So um, that's what, outside of that, I really don't have any really strong feelings on the matter. Um, I want to last uh, end off with a clip from Bill Isaac. Uh, we hope to get Bill on the show here soon. He is the former head of the FDIC, and uh, let's see what he says on this clip here. I think capital is very important. Liquidity is important. Diversification of risk is very important, which is why I worry that we have 50% of our banking system in the hands of five banks. Diversification of risk inside the bank and throughout the system, very important. We, we know the fundamentals of how, you know, what, what it takes to, to have a properly regulated banking system, and we just need to have the political will to do it. Therein lies the rub. Yes. Bill, one of the things we've heard through this crisis is this notion of too big to fail. What, what does too big to fail mean? And if that's the case, how do we create a financial system where there aren't institutions that are too big to fail? Despite what Dodd-Frank supporters claim, we have not ended too big to fail. Indeed, you can't. You've got, when you've got the five largest banks controlling 50% of the banking system, I'll guarantee you those five banks are too big to fail. Now, if one of them went down, in isolation, you know, it's a sunny day, no problems at all. One of them got in trouble 
and was going to fail, you might be able to figure out a way to take it down in a, in an orderly way, okay? But that's not how those come at you, because they're way too big, way too complex. They all do the same things in the same ways. And so when one of them is in trouble, they're all in trouble for the same reasons. It takes a systemic event to cause one of them to fail that is almost certainly going to make the others fail. Uh, if one of them sneezes, you know, the, the others are going are gonna to sneeze and catch cold and all that. Yes, he sounds like a true uh, banking executive. <laughs> so anyway, a uh, little little dry, but uh, you get the point. I mean, it's interesting to get that other viewpoint from someone who's trying to, you know, be out there and trumpet something. Bill is just a, you know, he's conservatively just talking as a person who has to regulate banks and what the problems of regulation are. And it's a great uh, insight. Go to his website. It is William Isaac, I-S-A-A-C, WilliamIsaac.com. And uh, he also has a book that you might want to pick out called pick up called senseless panic, how Washington failed America. And uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll see what we can do about getting them on the show. Hey, listen, um, it's been great talking to you. Um, I think you get it by now. Um, I'd love to hear from you folks. Uh, we'll set up better and better channels on this, but, but the bottom line is write me at Bruce at straighttalkwealth.com. Go to our website. Uh, I want you to watch the videos we've produced on the solutions page and on the retirement roadmap page. Uh, please circulate the show around. Let people know that this is available. Share our podcasts on uh, your social media. And uh, it's been great talking. Love all of you. I appreciate you listening for the long run here, but I wanted to give you substance and We'll see you soon. Look for the next podcast and listen to us in your local market. We now have a map up on the website that'll tell you where we're playing in your local market. That's straighttalkwealth.com. Take care. Have a great week.